Hey everyone, before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to explain what we intend this episode to be about. We're going to be having real talks about lived experiences around race, identity, and other dimensions of diversity. When we get into the conversation, you may experience some level of discomfort, and that's the point. This episode dives into some tough conversations, and we hope you listen with an open heart and open mind, and ultimately, embrace the power of being uncomfortable. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I'm a director at Softway, a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience in high performance company cultures. I'm joined today by my good friends and colleagues, Chris Petrie, Vice President of Softway. Hey, Chris. Hey. And Frank Dana, Director at Softway. Hi, Frank. Hello, everyone. How are y'all? How are y'all doing today? Yeah, I'm really excited because we have a. <laughs> am I supposed to answer that question? I mean, it wasn't rhetorical. I just genuinely wanted to know, Jeff. Oh, you said, I assume that you want the audience to know how. Never mind. Uh, each episode, we're diving into one element of business or strategy and testing our theory of love against it. And I am very excited for our guest today. He's been waiting patiently to be allowed to enter this conversation. His name is Victor Scotty, and he is a DEI practitioner and Black student advocate. He is the founder and chief inspiration officer of Moving Mountains LLC, which accelerates the possibilities of high achieving black boys through curated experiences that inspire innovation, spark creativity, and cultivate dreams. Amongst many other things he's doing, which I'm gonna actually hold off on and allow him to elaborate as we get to know him here. But welcome to the show, Victor. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. We're gonna get into your story and kind of all your passions. And but, but before we do that, we do a little thing called icebreakers. It's often very awkward and seemingly unnecessary, but we refuse to stop doing it. So we're going to do that. And, and I never see these questions until we get to this point, and here we go. Okay. Chris, you're first on my list. Chris, would you rather have unlimited first-class tickets or never have to pay for food again? Unlimited first-class tickets. You know, Maggie, so, because, chose, <laughs> so Maggie I, can chose that. I think she should have known the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's how I feel about the reason why I'm not a huge fan of like just taking free food is because I am particular about the food. Oh, got it. Um, and if someone else is choosing what I eat, that's going to be dead on arrival. So I would rather have somebody pay for first class tickets. And you didn't tell me I had a limit on the number of trips I can take. So I can live in a plane for the rest of my life, to be honest. And, you know, from there, I'll pay for the food that I'm going to eat. Well, they didn't say someone else. The question doesn't say someone else would pick your food. It says you never have to pay for food again. So you go wherever you want. You just never get a bill. But that, that was up out in the open. So I'm used to things not being what I believe. And so I always go to the negative side of it, which is <laughs> free food means somebody else is choosing where I can go and what I can have. And, you know, I believe so, in access. <laughs> a great a great little get, glimpse into your psyche, I guess. Thank you for that. So, Frank. Yeah. 
Would you rather be forced to dance anytime you heard music or be forced to sing along to any song you heard? I would much rather sing than dance. Much rather sing than dance because dancing is not going to get me TikTok famous. Let's just be honest. So and singing well, and singing will, you know it to be true, Jeff. You, you, met, you I don't think I've ever heard you sing as long as we've known each other. Well, so maybe this maybe this podcast been blessed blessed with the vo- the vocal talent and you're maybe about this to episode be. is your <clears throat> debut. Okay, go for it. It will not be. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're ready. <laughs> you're ready. All right. All right, Victor, you ready? Yes. Would you rather move to a new city every week or never be able to leave the city you were born in? That is a hard one. I would say move to a new city every week. Hmm. Um, I think what quarantine has taught me, and especially all this (laughs) snow in Chicago where I can't even really go for walks, is that it's been driving me crazy. So I'd rather be on the go mm. rather than stuck. Not stuck. I love Chicago. So let me let me put that out there. But I don't like to be forced to do anything. So that was really the kicker of the question. So I would move every week. Well, you're kind of being forced to move every week too. So. <laughs> well, but then I can rephrase it as I'm just a Renaissance man. So, <laughs> but you're also choosing the next city, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, all about yeah, framing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all about framing. Choose where you go next. But I can't you, twist the fact that I'm stuck in Chicago and I actually can't go anywhere. I mean, you can you can move you can move to different areas of the city within the city every week. Okay. Jeff's trying to break the okay, never mind. I mean, Chris Chris started us down this path of overanalyzing these questions. No, I know my explanation was not an overanalysis, logic bully, <laughs> Jeff. Jeff is a logic bully, Victor. I just want to like welcome you to our, our team. Um, so when you try and explain, you get questioned, and then when not you it. present counter arguments, then it's like, well, why are you going over overanalyzing? It's like, well, logic bully just tried to come at me. So yeah, you know. Shots got fired. <laughs> I have this button that can literally just remove Chris from this podcast. I just click, wow. I, click I, I click this, but I choose not to use That's it because so I love you, yeah. I love you, Chris. I appreciate it. <laughs> see, Victor, this empathize. This is what empathy looks like, right? So you get to see what I do. But I'm, I'm answering questions. I'm answering questions. It's, That's all I've done today. Be, you just have to say I said those. what I said. Yes, yeah, like I said that. what I said. <laughs> It's going to be one of those episodes. If you don't like it, you don't like it. Exactly. (laughs) Here we go. All right. So we're going to jump right into it. And I can't wait for this. I can't wait for this first part because I get to. That was a good episode, Jeff. We're we're rapping. Is that? That's it. Six six and a half minutes. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Love is a Business Strategy uh, starring Chris. So, Victor. Victor, What's let's that? let's let's start with your story. I'd love okay. for you to share with us just, you know, kind of your 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 history, your background, how what got you here today, a little bit about yourself, please, if you don't. Sure, mind. happy to do so. So despite the fact that I just said I would not want to stay in Chicago for the rest of my life, I am born and raised here and I love my city. Um so born and raised in Chicago. My family's been here for three generations, so really deep roots, like me, my dad, my grandfather all went to the same high school. Um, So we even like grew up in the same like broader neighborhood. 
Um, I think growing up in Chicago is really interesting for a number of reasons. And I think it definitely informs like how I think about and talk about equity. Um, it's, it's very racially segregated. So growing up on the South side, it was definitely predominantly black. I think though, not a though, and um, I, from an early age, I always knew that like blackness wasn't monolithic. So because that was like my environment, it, you know, I was in church, I was in school, I was, you know, always meeting different people. Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of how I think about equity is really rooted in, um, you know, how do we support folks where they are? Um, so I think that's like been the greatest lesson um, from where I'm from. Um, I went on to uh, go to University of Pennsylvania in Philly. Um, Philly's a very interesting place. Uh, I loved it and I loved Penn. Um, always thought that I would do more work, like more community-based work. Um, but then because Penn is so pre-professional, I kind of got caught up in like the Wharton of it all. And so that's how I got introduced to Google, <laughs> which has actually been a really big blessing and been a lot of fun because I never knew that like, like how expansive the tech space was and that you could really like focus on people and education and equity. And that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years. Um, and I feel like also being able to directly give back um, and work within the black community. Um, so kind of that, those, that journey kind of took me to California. So I was in Silicon Valley for a little bit. Um, then I moved to New York. So I was there for three years. I probably had the most fun of my life, but not a lot of sleep. And so then um, I wanted to move back to Chicago, partly for family reasons, but also because I think that like Chicago is a good medium between the Bay Area um, and New York. So I feel like I've really been able to build um, and craft a life. So, so that's kind of been like a quick version of my journey. Um, other than that, um, I am a really big family person. Um, so my parents and my sister all live here. Um, so it's good to be able to see them. Um, I have a partner, he lives in New York. Um, his name is Gary. So once he hears this, shout out to him. He's amazing. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> no. yeah. So that's a little bit, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Awesome. So I've been to the UPenn campus and mm -hmm. I actually fell in love with the cereal bar. This is this might date me or age me because this was like when I was in school, we, we uh, took a trip up there. Yeah, um, but it was really cool if you've never heard of it or if it's still around, not around. I was going to say, I don't know what that is. So it was a, a, a breakfast um, restaurant that only serves cereal. Oh. And you would just go through the line and you could like mix and match your cereals. And like all of the employees wore pajamas as the uniform and they would what? play Saturday morning cartoons. And it was on campus? It was on campus. It was like, oh. this. so um, I went to uh, school and from 2002 to 2006. And I think I went in 2005 to UPenn for okay. that experience. And awesome. I just, I felt like it was like bulletproof because I'm like, who wouldn't eat cereal? Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but how much, I'm, how much were they I'm, charging for a bowl of cereal? It, it was, it was Whole Foods prices, I will say. Um, <laughs> That's an abomination. That's crazy. Yeah. But yeah. And so, and you can like have these add-ons. So you could add chocolate, you could add like fruit, you could add all this other stuff Interesting. And, like, to it. Um, hmm. But it was like, one of the simplest concepts, but it was just really cool. Maybe it was because nostalgia for me, like, oh, having cereal and watching Saturday morning cartoons. Like, it's felt <laughs> That's like also cool. so funny to me, though, because a lot of people, like, I know a good number of people from Philly, and they all, like, really go hard for cereal. 
So I wonder, is that like a Philadelphia thing? You know, I actually, weirdly enough, y'all were talking about that. And I've been to a place called Serial Killer Cafe in London. Really? A few years ago, I was mm-hmm. I was in London and there was this event that was happening. And it sounds exactly like what you were saying. There's this just yeah. floor to ceiling of all these different cereals. You can pick your toppings. You can do all this stuff. But it was called yeah. Serial Killer Cafe. Interesting. Very strange. So, so, it, so Chris, there... I'm just saying like that, that. So whenever I think of you, Penn, I automatically think of cereal since that whole trip. So, so I was like, I wonder if he knows. But now I have to ask around. Yeah. <laughs> it was called the cereal bar. That was the name of it. Nice. You can recreate the experience for yourself at home as well. Uh, no, you can't recreate it because you bought it and you're putting your own bowl. Totally different experience. Way to shut that down. Yeah. That's right. Their entire yeah. business model. <laughs> Step one, head to store. All right. Step two, buy one box. All right. Like, All right. So so Victor, I wanna I wanna home in a little bit on like what you're doing right now. Like talk about yeah. talk about what you're up to and you know, you know, what, what your passions are. Absolutely. Um, so I think one of the one of the experiences that I got through Google that was really transformative for me, I actually ran this program um, called the Computer Science Summer Institute. So it's a three-week like summer intensive experience for high or for college students. So they had just graduated from high school, the summer between high school and college. Um, and so they came to like a campus of a historically black college and university that we were partnering with. And they went through a three week camp where they uh, learned computer science. And so like technical skill development, but also, you know, soft skills or, or and then also learning about Google. And so that was really transformative for me as a program manager of that because it dawned on me, I'm like, well, we're at historically black colleges. So like 98% of my students identified as black. You know, I identify the same way. I brought other Googlers who really, who were also black, you know, and we're at this campus, which just has so much history and legacy. And so when all those things really came together, I'm like, this is really powerful. And I think in many industries, but especially in tech, we don't see this. So I'm like, this is actually like a direct foil to all the complexities that I think we've started talking about in the past five or six years. I think, um, love the work that I did <laughs> that I did at Google and love that role, but I'm also like, hey, we can actually swap out computer science for other things, right? Like I have these relationships with these campuses. Again, no shades, Google love them, but I'm like, I can also do this myself and I'll have more license you know, to be able to focus, you know, on the populations that I want to focus on and also really have a hand in what the components of the program are. Um, so that really led me to Moving Mountains. Um, and so what Moving Mountains is, it's really an accelerator for Black college men to equip them um, for that personal and professional alignment in corporate America. So when I look at, like, my first five years in corporate, um, it was really challenging. I think, you know, school in all ways from kindergarten through college is very facilitated, right? And there are like milestones and steps and semesters and years and you have this responsibility. Now, you know, in fifth grade, you'll have this responsibility. And then we throw students into the world of work. And then especially those coming from these like super high performing places, you're like, oh, the world is mine. I can conquer everything and you can, but there's like no bridge. Right. So I'm like, I know I'm smart. I know I'm capable. I'm sure I can produce and achieve. But like, how do I do this? How do I actually manage this? 
And I think that when we talk about um, groups that have been like historically excluded from certain industries, um, I think that that's even tougher. Um, and so that's how I really got to this work. And I think, you know, Black men, um, we don't focus on Black men in corporate America. I think the more we talk about equity, the more we talk about intersectionality, um, I think it's easier to, and when you actually look at the data, a lot of times Black women in corporate America, company by company, unfortunately, it's staggering, have horrible experiences in that space. So I think from like 2017 to now, entrepreneurship for Black women has increased by 600%. Oh Amazing yeah. that, you know, but also that's telling us that they're flocking from corporate and there are definitely reasons for that. Mm. Um, so I think it's it comes out as like an obvious um, and very glaring place to focus. But identifying as a black man myself, also I can find multiple intersections. I'm queer, I'm Christian. I'm also in a black fraternity, navigating all of that stuff. Um, and when I'm mm -hmm. in community with other black men, with other brothers, we there's so much that we talk about. And that's even outside of the perception that I feel like folks have for black men and boys in America and abroad. Um, so that's a little bit about like why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I think it's so important um, to focus on folks like me, um, you know, because I think that we need that dedicated focus um, yep. and we need to be able to come together in community um, and really be able to build off of the experiences of one another. Yep. Oh, that's really awesome. And I can tell you from personal experience that bridge does not exist and you have to build it yourself. Yeah. In situations as a, a black man trying to get into corporate out of college. Um, I remember I had to literally ask professors to connect me to people. Um, mm -hmm. I, like any new connection I made, I like clung within an inch of my life to everybody because I never knew like who had something that could turn into an opportunity for me. Um, and so like you become your own salesperson essentially right out of college. Yeah. Um, college and you're not always equipped with those skills. Um, like, so <clears throat> I took it upon myself to like learn business etiquette. So whenever my university would offer business etiquette, like in dinner etiquette and all that stuff, like I went to it because I didn't have that. And I saw myself trying to go into corporate lunches and dinners and not knowing how to pick up a fork or which fork to pick up. Um, or just, you know, what conversation to strike up. So all those small little things that, you know, some people take for granted. Uh, many people who, again, come from backgrounds where that equity is not, you know, present or mm -hmm. that access is not readily available throughout their childhood. You have to sort of add all this periphery around your formal education to be ready for it. And so I'm, I'm really yeah. curious to know, like in your experience and with the stories, I'm sure plenty of stories around you and your work that you've done, mm -hmm. have you seen, you know, how, how black boys and black men cope when they don't have access to a program like yours? Like what, what do they do? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I can speak from personal experience and I can also speak, you know, from, you know, what I've observed and, what I've been blessed that people have shared with me. But in my personal experience, I think I continue to achieve and I continue to do all of those things that you said, like, okay, I, I'm, I've always been good at connecting with people, which I think is a really strong strength. So I'm like, okay, let me reach out to Chris. Let me reach out to Jeff. And if I have this question, you know, I can ask and, you know, really like step-by-step step crafting my own experience. Um, so I think in the absence of, that readily available access, 
Um, you, you have to craft your own experience. And I think that can look many different ways, but I think the result for many people, no matter which kind of path you choose and how you do it is that it's exhausting. Mm. And a lot of times you're met with, you know, systemic barriers. So, you know, cause at the end of the day, um, if we're talking about corporate America, you're still in this structure. And the reality is that the structure of corporate America AKA capitalism and capitalism was built on the back of chattel slavery was not created for black people in general. So it's, it's not surprising that black women and black men and those who also identify as people of color, um, I feel like a lot of times we have to claw and like step by step, you know, to be able to really just like be at the table and feel comfortable about being at the table. So I think that my thought process is okay, so many of us have done this. It's been hard. It's been challenging. You know, some people have lasted until they get to that VP level. Other people are like, I did a year of this. I'm out because this sucks, right? But we can mm -hmm. actually start to, I believe, operationalize those experiences by coming together, talking to each other and saying, what, yeah. you know, I want to be that person that, you know, can help who I was. So I sure. think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and as it relates to like career development, I think like I was still achieving, you know, by these indicators like performance management and, you know, making enough money to be able to support myself and people were proud of me and all of that. But mm -hmm. I think how that played out for me is I was lost. Like I yeah. didn't have a reason for why I was doing this. I'm like, money is not the primary motivator for me. I never mm -hmm. really intended to be in the tech space. So Google has such a cachet, which is awesome. But for me, that wasn't a motivator either because I didn't want to be there. I actually felt a lot of guilt because mm -hmm. I'm like, I had vowed to like help my community directly and be, a, and be in the community with my work and I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. So how it played out for me was just a lot of cognitive dissonance. I think exactly. for other people, they end, up, they end up leaving or you know they lean into what is concrete, right? Let me get on a path where I know I can make this money for my mm -hmm. family and, and secure my future. I know I can live where I want and all of that. And all of that is valid. I just am interested in making sure that like for my children and for my younger mentees is not as challenging because I think that we do have enough capital, social mm -hmm. and navigational and aspirational capital within the black community um, you know, to be able to come together and, and, and help each other and really build off of our own experiences. Yeah. And, and this goes back to your earlier statement that, you know, being black is not a monolith, which means that everybody's having a totally different experience in this. Mm -hmm. thing being black. Um, but I'm curious, right? So, you know, on, on that path where people are going into the corporate workspace and they are black men and mm -hmm. they are having more of those experiences, as you say, that that are likely things that they've not been prepared for or interfacing with realities that maybe weren't true in school or weren't true in the home. Mm -hmm. um, and they're sort of facing a lot of difference and in certain places, discrimination, lack of access, lack of opportunity, mm -hmm. um, but also a lack of mentorship within the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, what would you recommend to those workplaces that are looking to hire and retain black, black talent um, to really consider in terms of, you know, um, maybe a, attention or things that they can be doing to to help you know that bridge building not just once they get in but once mm -hmm. they need to work up 
Yeah, that is such a great question. And I think that's like the essential question of diversity, equity, and inclusion <laughs> at this yeah. point. Um, and I honestly think that the beginning is you have to believe the like what folks are saying in your company. Hmm. So it's not, I think that like a lot of the work that you all do, which is why it speaks to me is yes about love, but I think a foundation of love is truth telling. And hmm. so as organizations, we have to be willing to tell the truth. And so if black person after black person, um, Latinx woman after Latinx woman is telling you that this is a bad experience, you know, I feel like I should have been promoted years ago. You know, I do have this evidence and all of that. And I also have issues with like having to pull receipts for everything as if like my word is not true. So again, when we talk about truth telling, right? You have to listen to what I'm telling you. And so I can also dive deeper, but I start there because I think that when we talk about DEI, I think that people really want to stray away from like these, like what I think they call like fluffy conversations. Yeah. Also, why I'm so interested in the work that you all do when you talk about love, I think people think like, what? Like, how does that play into business and all of that? And I'm like, it absolutely is, right? Because if you don't have that foundation, then you actually can't move forward. So we can't get into tactics, you know, or programs or initiatives or policies if inherently I'm actually not believing that your experience is valid and I'm never going to be in the right frame of mind, no matter what the ERG is, no matter what the program is, how painstakingly we sat down and crafted it, it's not going to be successful. So I think hands down, you know, that is number one. Um, you know, I think number two, you really have to do that deep dive into the people processes. So that's why, you know, after kind of falling into HR, I'm like, oh, this is actually perfect because this is the crux of equity. When we look at pay disparity, when we look at disparity in performance management, you know, the data doesn't lie. And so we're in a moment now where everyone's like, show me the data, show me the data. Again, got to believe the facts. And the facts are that different groups, you know, are experiencing this environment in different ways. And when we actually look at the real indicators, um, it shows that. So I think that like, and that's a big bucket of stuff, so I can like pause there. But mm -hmm. I think like the, those people processes, I think that's kind of the first place that people need to go. But you have to start with really questioning yourself. And I, that's why I think this work is so complex because that personal has to come into the workplace. And so I personally, like, I have to believe what is happening. And if I don't have a clear vision on what's happening and I'm not willing to believe that, nothing's going to work. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the, you know, great sort of Black privileges is that we can grab and hold on to receipts very well because we've been conditioned to. Oh, yeah. Um, so personal and professionally, mm -hmm. like, I keep my receipts, right? And yeah, I, always... I have email tags with everything, <laughs> yeah. like performance yeah, management. Like... So when you yeah, try to like, come for me, like you actually can't do that. I delete yeah. nothing. Like nothing is deleted. Yeah. Like, yeah. Fact. Personal email, professional is just never deleted. <laughs> so like I like next to Google, my email inbox is the next most query thing, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, it's like, I'm not mm -mm. everybody's like, why aren't you like erasing this stuff? I'm like, because I might need it. <laughs> but I <laughs> I think uh, you know, getting to that point around the people processes, um, it is so interconnected into sort of that self-awareness around behavior, but also the ability to believe the yeah. stories that may sound unbelievable. 
And I think that always, or I'm not gonna say always, but that in many times and in many experiences that I've had where trying to speak truth, even objectively, third party, I'm not in your organization, but here are some of the stories, bam, that are coming forward. And everybody's like, you're doing this to scare us. You're doing this to race bait. You're doing this to, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort of make this a negative experience. I'm like, wait, this is not a negative experience for you hearing the story. Imagine yeah. living through it, right? Exactly. Um, but there's still this um, huge amount of disbelief when mm-hmm. um, a, a lived experience is incongruent from the majority or from the mainstream. Right. Um, and then, you know, that that sort of ability, easy ability to just sort of squelch it or brush it aside and continue mm-hmm. on with a process or with a, a, um, a policy that will continue to create those experiences elsewhere is mm-hmm. like groundbreakingly like wait, shocking, but also just yeah. depressing and disheartening because it's like you have a human who's telling you that my boss never looks at me. My boss chooses not to have one-on-ones with me. Mm-hmm. My boss chooses not to properly level me. My boss loves to give me work, but never you know, wants to give me any credit for it or pay me appropriately or yeah. you know, let others know that I'm doing good and I could be considered for a promotion elsewhere, right? Like they want to retain me for the purpose of continuing to give me work because they know that I do a great job, which Mm -hmm. if you look at a lot of performance around, you know, blacks in the workplace, it shows that they are overworked, but also underleveled and therefore underpaid. Um, And so when you get into that process of, you know, really looking at levels in an organization, right, Mm -hmm. because what they do is they'll say, well, they're getting paid at the right rate based on where they're leveled. they don't talk about whether they're in the right level. And so when you get into a lot of those DEI conversations, there's all these tricks and things that they do with the data. I'm sorry to get my soapbox, but like that's, that is what happens. And so when you're in a place or a position where you're ready to do stuff and do the work, Mm -hmm. um, regardless of what your background is, I think that those are the places where you have to really sort of take a magnifying glass and don't wait for the data to come from outside your organization, which to me is always the biggest sort of red flag when an organization says, well, show me how some other organization fixed theirs and then I'll fix mine. And it's like, well, your, it. data. <laughs> it's yeah. like your data is what you should be looking at, regardless of what anybody else is doing, because those are still lived experiences that are getting muted, that are getting pushed out, yeah. that are getting um, ignored. Um, and that are often, oftentimes leading to EEOC violations, compliance issues, et cetera. And again, nobody's yeah. getting wiser and also nobody's getting helped. Yeah. I, you know, one of, one of the reasons I was like so excited to, to have this conversation with you, Victor, is like one of the things, although we're just talking about, you know, a lot of our topics are going to be love and trust and mm-hmm. these things. One of the things we don't talk about as often is introspection and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. It's at the it's at the very core of what we mm-hmm. teach and talk about. And, you know, we're often talking about these topics that have all these tangible like applications. And the thing about um, talking with you is, uh, you know, it's, I'm, it's, re- it's reminding me of the, the importance of kind of for our audience and for as a takeaway, this the reality of what it means to really come to terms and, and be real and have a growth mindset around truths, as you'd said. Mm-hmm. around us you know we we had the opportunity to work with an organization that i'll just keep very vague but we had the opportunity to work with some leaders in this organization and we did an exercise we had with the ability to to gain access to some testimonials within the organization written by real people anonymously so real stories and we took out all the names we gutted it all out but we we mm-hmm. shared the stories because some of them were i mean i won't i can't repeat them but very they were just things that 
things that executives had said yeah that you know and and way that you know a woman was treated way that you know these are just real stories we, mm -hmm. we anonymized the whole thing and we we did an exercise in a room of leaders in that organization very large organization but we but a group of leaders and we and we had them read these we had them read it mm -hmm. and then you know this exercise was around coming being able to be uncomfortable because you have to open up to the real the fact that this could be re that is reality and what you see in that room in that immediate moment was oh this must have like when was this from like was this from Excuse 10 me. years ago 15 years ago we're like no this yeah. was this year and they go and they go they go well that must have been i mean that wasn't us i mean that was like it's if so i was there i would have spoke up like why didn't yeah. why didn't anybody speak up like i don't believe yeah. that that could have happened without anybody saying it, anything it exploded and we're like, yeah it, so and, like, and, yeah. It, and every and everybody turned outward immediately yeah, everyone right. yeah. looked around them and nobody stopped to look at themselves and their their own teams their own leadership mm -hmm. and and we had this that we had this saying that you know if one of us have done it we've all done it yeah and and whether you can and you're, I, there's such a there's a thing that we don't touch in this podcast far enough is it's just that you know you have to people get so offended and frustrated and hurt when they get put on kind of like having to to deal with some of these hard things and you feel like you'll find every reason to like not be part of the guilty party for some reason when really mm -hmm. if well, all we're trying to do is talk about progress and growth right all we're talking about is moving forward and doing better things and that's not a bad thing it's okay to reckon with mistakes and problems and, mm -hmm. and realities that are with an organization i think um yeah, your story and you kind of your your everything you guys have been sharing has just been really reminding me that we don't push that enough in our conversations here. That, yeah. that piece of introspection for every single person, not just your leader or mm -hmm. those around you, because you're because like you're blameless. Yeah, yeah, it's and you know so many people in the room were like, if I was in that room when that happened, I would have I would have spoke up. I would I, mm -hmm. I would have said something. We're like we're like really because they're in the story. This person says there were twelve people in that room. Yeah, and no one said. And they all and they all watched it happen. Yeah, but it so, also makes me. Yeah, anyways, think of, I mean, to what you're saying though, I think one of the coolest things about this work is frustrating, but I'm like in a lot of ways, like I'll say corporate DEI work. I'll just put it in that bucket, forces us to think about things in ways and operate in ways that we're not used to organizationally or personally. So I'm listening to you and I'm thinking how many conversations I have with people. I'm like, oh, you don't tell the truth to yourself. And I'm not proclaiming to be someone who can, you know, who um, is like placing the blame or saying like, oh, you know, I'm so honest with myself. No, there are times where I have to call myself like, Victor, that's actually not it like call a thing a thing and i say that to myself you know and i try to do better but as i'm talking to people um and i'm also a really big energy person too so sometimes i can feel that i'm like oh you don't like know yourself and yeah. so i i think about and sometimes i've actually been able to have conversations with folks like that and then observe their leadership style or how they're engaging with people and it's deplorable and I'm like, you don't see it. And unfortunately, you know, this like strategy that you're asking me for, all this data that you want me to continuously pull, all these beautiful decks and slides are actually not going to help that. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think <laughs> that all. that is like at all, like literally at, all. at, at all. all. So at this point I'm doing busy work. And yeah. so I think that's like 
one that that's the complexity is that you know what it really takes you know for equity i think to take shape and to take form and folks to really move in the right direction on a personal level but also on an organizational level a lot of companies have issues with that and i think that's why when you really get deep into it everybody gets flustered and it's like oh well because people talk about collaboration cross-functional xyz but people don't do it right and it's like acceptable if it's just like general business i'll say to operate that way but you actually cannot get anywhere with equity without doing that and that's why you know cycle after cycle or diversity report after diversity report is the same and then people are like confused so i think yeah. that is so complex and so challenging but it can really and is a really beautiful journey you know if you lean into it you know and i think it it pays off not only professionally but also personally um and so yeah it's it's it's, it's all wrapped up kind of in mm -hmm. like your overall experience and existence and the experience that we're sharing with one another yeah yeah and when it comes to like the especially on the the black men and the black boys that you are supporting and working with what are they looking for the most in terms of their either work experience or first work experience or bridge that they need to sort of have created what yeah. are they longing for like what what do you see and this could be a number of things and you know i'm not saying that again we're not a monolith like mm -hmm. people but you know do you see any commonalities or trends and sort of expectations or things that they're looking for just so listeners can start understanding maybe some of the needs they can start meeting day one versus when they're yeah. ready to put in a notice that's a really great great question and i think the answer is actually a lot of them don't know and it's okay at that moment because I, you know, I started working with folks at the college age. I, I had a, a clue maybe, you know, and so when I look back to what I thought, I actually did and have like done stuff that satisfies that, but I would never be able to name it. And so what I would offer is to actually give folks the space and the career development you know, and the real performance expectations and feedback, all of that stuff actually leads to clarity and focus and being comfortable with like, I have, I really think in, in the workplace, people want to have a clear function. Like, this is what I'm here to do. They want to be aligned on that with whoever their manager, superior advisor, whatever you want to call it. And they want to be rewarded for it. And they want to be able to be, I think, their authentic selves, however they define that at the time. I really do think that that's the essence of everything. And so I actually don't think that it's different for Black people or for Black men or any type of intersection gay Black men. I think it's the same. I just mm -hmm. think that because of systemic barriers, because of perception, we don't even give people, like we don't literally give them the space and the time to be able to do that. So if you're, someone said this to me, I met someone during quarantine and I promise I'm going somewhere. Um, so we were engaging on Zoom for a long time. And then we were like, you know what? Let's like have a socially distanced lunch or whatever. I had lunch with this person, had a whole conversation, like two hours. I stood up and this person was like, wow, I didn't know you were that big. And I'm like, okay, right? But like, no. what am I supposed to take take from that? You know, mm -hmm. with what I do know, you probably yeah. like put me in a box, 
And it seems like I shattered whatever that box was. And I'm also looking at the visceral fear once you like literally saw like my stature. Mm -hmm. And so when things like that happen on a daily basis in the workplace, when I, I like, as I walk through offices, right? I have to be conscious of how, just how I'm being. What is my mm-hmm. face looking like? Um, do I feel that this is a comfortable environment for me to wear my hair in a different way? Do I need to take off my hat? Can I wear a hoodie? Um, you know, my size, I'm a tall guy. And so I see the looks in people's faces if, if they're not aware of that, you know, and then they are. So I yeah. mentioned that stuff to say, those are all, and, and for some people who don't experience that, they don't even think about that stuff. So all, all that is going through my mind in addition to what I'm here to do. And so then on top of that, there's no clarity there mm-hmm. because like, you don't know how to give me feedback. Like you actually don't know how to have these conversations with me. So you're not. So then I'm going through all of these things at the same time organizationally, but also just my mere presence because I have to be aware for my own safety. So I think Chris, to your question, um, I think what I what I would have wanted was I think that like intentional, you know, guidance and people actually and people did it for me, um, you know, in doses, like asking me those questions, you know, letting me know that I also had agency. And I think for people of color, you know, in the workplace, um, agency is something that I think I believe that we have to like build up for ourselves and then exercise for ourselves. So I think, you know, for me, I actually entered into a role. I realized that it wasn't right for me. And so I left Mm -hmm. after four months. And for me, that was so powerful because I'm like, it's a blessing that I'm even in a position to do that. Um, You know, that I feel good about it, you know, and that like, I know that I'll be able to provide for myself and all these things. And -hmm. it's interesting because when I talk to older folks, especially older Black people, they're like, well, when are you going to get a job? Or <laughs> what you mean entrepreneur? Like, where is the check coming from? Yeah. <laughs> and I get it. You know, I get it. Sometimes yeah. I'm asking too, where is the check coming from? So, <laughs> like, I understand it, yeah. but nothing for me will top me saying, you know what, this is not for me. And I'm going to make a decision that will set me up to feel good and to be able to really be in my fullness. And yeah. my greatest hope is that Black people and Black men, um, specifically for what I'm doing, but really all of us can enter into spaces and exit and enter in them seamlessly and be able to still feel that way um, and be able to maintain that. And I think that that's always been, I always say, I usually say always, but I'm not trying to say that it's always, but typically when you tell, or if you were to told me, you know, early in my career that I had the agency to do what I wanted, right? Like I would have been like, I don't think you get that. Like I feel like, like right, right, right. And then eventually, <laughs> I got to a place where it's like, oh, I'm actually, you know, a luxury here. I'm not a commodity. And mm-hmm. you know, I started rejecting offers of people to mentor me because I'm like, I've seen the way you operate. There's nothing that I want. I wish to learn about you or from you because the way you treat X, Y, Z. Like I'm not about to sign up for that. I'm not going to take that into my realm going forward. And that offends people when they're like, when you decline mm-hmm. their generous offer, right? Yeah. But I have an agency to know who I, I 
I can choose my mentors. I'm not desperate and I'm not hard up, right? Because after a certain yeah. time in your career, you built enough connection um, yeah. with real humans and all different places, all different walks of life. Um, and that can honestly be a very freeing thing. But for many folks that are coming in, especially black men and women who are coming into the workforce, that never crosses their mind as to mm -hmm. what are my non-negotiables? Yeah. But also, who won't I accept help from? Right. Like who isn't right for me? Who is going to teach me things the wrong way? Right. Because mm -hmm. everybody that smiles in your face is not your friend. And that sounds yeah. really negative. But, you know, when you have when you've had enough experiences, life experience, you, you start to like, as you say, you read the energy in the room. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I don't, this this probably isn't going to bode well for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I'm going to exit out and I'll find a nice way to say no. Yeah. But it's still a no. <laughs> and I think what's important to me, like everything that you said, yes. And what was mm -hmm. coming up for me as you were speaking was at least, and I'll speak for myself. I yeah. used to like, if I was 10 years younger, so the Victor 10 years ago, and I'm listening mm -hmm. to what you're saying, my question would be like, well, how do I get to that point? Like, what does it actually take? Like, when did you begin to understand that? Like, yeah. How did you how did you say like, oh, you know, Tom, who's trying to mentor me, actually no. Like I not I just my mind has always worked that way. Like, well, how do you do these things? Yeah. And so what I would want people to kind of hear and what I would offer, and this is what Moving Mountains is doing, is hey, not only are we gonna have these conversations about these topics, which is helpful, but also therapy, coaching. Um, really diving into what does like black masculinity mean to you? Because I think the society also gives us like, you can either be this or you could be that. And I think that is something unique to, you know, black men. And so what does it mean to actually be outside of those boxes? Like, who am I? And yeah. so there really are resources and facilitated processes, you know, to help, you know, us come to like to say like, oh, mm -hmm. I, I'm exhibiting agency or when you right. talk about something like self-efficacy, right? Yeah. So we can also break these things down. And I think like younger Victor, mm -hmm. I didn't really have, again, that bridge or that connection point. And so it just seemed like something lofty, like, well, maybe I don't have access to that. Or like maybe my experience isn't lending itself for me to be able to think that way, mm -hmm. but that's not true, right? Yeah. And so there are like real resources. Um, yeah you know, to be able to, you know, to help us think about these things and, you know, and to help us really grow into the fullness of ourselves, which I yeah. think is the best thing that we can do. For sure. I think I, I, I just have so much appreciation for just being able to just sit in on this conversation yeah. and, and talk about these things, because, you know, I think um, it, it's, it's this very specific focus you have, right, Victor, black men entering the corporate workspace. But as you've spoken about your experiences and Chris, you've shared as well, you know, even outside of the topic of, 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 of race, like there's this reality of that when you share these stories, there's this, there's this disconnect where I'm like, okay, well, you know, being not black, I've, I mean, some of these things you're talking about that you have to worry about, that you have to think about some of the struggles, like I felt entitled to a lot of my life. Yeah. I felt it's never popped up as something I need to even worry about. And, you know, understanding that is really powerful for me. And I, I really have a lot of thinking to do on, on what that means to be inclusive around me, because, you know, when, yeah. when I, and again, I'm trying to expand this, not to, not to like, like talk outside the topic of just black and race, but, you know, mm -hmm. this does apply to, in my mind, to just not, you know, marginalization in general. 
um, where, you know, there's always dominant groups at play. Yeah. Even, even outside of race and gender, you know, just, you know, people, all, there's just every situation has a dominant group and a non-dominant group. And you don't think about the non-dominant group till you hear the stories, till you really get to know the people mm-hmm. and you really have that love for one another to help yeah. bring out the truths because, you know, I, you know, I'm a big guy, I'm a t- relatively tall guy. I don't ever walk through a hall and think about what anybody thinks about me or how Same. I look or how I'm dressed or anything. Yeah. And that little bit of empathy, I know I'm just honing on that one part of your story right now, but that that's something that is so important to like, you know, just think about a little bit mm-hmm. to me and, and hearing that story. And like, I, I, I say this out loud right now for myself, but also for listeners who are, who are maybe, you know, also hearing these stories, such a powerful, I, I, I'm encouraging everyone to turn it inward. Again, yeah. we talked about introspection earlier and, and have some really hard truths with yourself about, you know, the reality of your bias and your, your presence, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm trying not to make it just about race and other things like that, because it really yeah. is this thing is a mindset at the end of the day where we enter situations only knowing our perspective and yeah. these biases get lost in, in kind of our own privilege and things like that. And I, so I just, I, I want to share that because I, I'm going through that and I appreciate you you guys sharing some of that perspective so I can continue kind of exploring that. And I, I believe that changing culture is like really at the individual level. And I think it's on everybody yeah. to really take good hard looks at, at themselves. Yeah. And I would also, you know, say, I think that one of my con- like concerns slash fears about, of how divided we are. And I, I guess I'm speaking from like an American context is that, I think a lot of people think like, so like me sharing my story or someone like a black person sharing their story. I think a lot of people kind of look at like, well, what is my experience like in relation to that, like to their experience. And I think that that speaks to like just the divisiveness that we're in. So what I would Mm -hmm. offer is that I think everyone, because I often get the question of like, if I'm one-on-one with folks, some people are like, I don't feel like I really have I'm not really in this conversation. And I'm like, you're absolutely in it because society has conditioned all of us. And so there are roles that we all play based on all of our identities, right? And so race is like a factor there. But if we want to put it into a, you know, a work context, think of like, you know, maybe you've always been groomed to be a CEO, We can like deconstruct what that means, but maybe it means a certain set of behaviors. Maybe it means this is how I treat people or just like, hey, I know I'm the leader. So I might not be like the CEO right now, but everyone has always told me that like, I'm going to lead. And so I'm gonna act like that from day one, even, you know, in my first job, because I know that that's my reality, Mm -hmm. right? So I think what people can do is really interrogate like what roles am I playing, you know, and are they, am I being conscious about them? Yeah. And when, and when you become more conscious and really think about the things that you say and do and how you operate, I think that's how we can all tackle this, you know, together. Um, oh, and so, that. yeah, so it doesn't have to be in relation, you know, to anybody else's experience. Yeah. And just to add on to that, I, I, I'm pretty sure there are some listeners who get really skittish or uncomfortable when these kind of conversations come up and they just sit and stew 
or they either shut down or they are getting angry because they feel like we're pointing a finger at a particular individual or particular group. And that's not the intent of any conversation where we're trying to break down the walls and the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the best way that I've heard how to help sort of um, get past that feeling that some people might have where they might feel triggered in whatever way that, that manifests is to really think about comfort. And in many organizations, it's not an intended discrimination. It's not an intended marginalization. It's not an intended, you know, microaggression, but it is something where when we talk about the issues that certain people have faced or experienced in the workplace, a lot of times it's a byproduct of people trying to maintain comfort and harmony mm-hmm. in, the, in the space, right? And so when you are having these conversations or as you start getting more comfortable having these conversations, that discomfort is a, a signal for introspection, not to mm, walk away. It is it's time for you to now start understanding why am I triggered? Why is this offending me? Why am I bothered by someone else's lived experience? Why do I feel guilty if that is where you're mm-hmm. going, right? Like, so asking yourself those questions when you start feeling uncomfortable is the best sort of way to walk the journey versus feeling that and then saying, we need to shut this down. We need to stop this. I don't want to hear anymore. This isn't happening. I don't believe it. Right. So going back to your, you know, understanding and receiving truth, but also giving truth, you know, Mm -hmm. when you start getting into that uncomfortable space, that is the sign that I need to go back and introspect. I must Mm -hmm. not be fully aware of who I am, what I've been doing or what others around me are doing that could be hurting or harming others unintentionally or intentionally. And I, I let my silence allow for that evil to happen. It's awesome, man. Well, with that, uh, <laughs> this was, this was definitely a, a really, uh, great, really powerful conversation. I'm really appreciative of this, this opportunity to have had yeah. this discussion. I actually, you know, need to make more room personally. I need to make more room in my life to have these conversations intentionally more often so i actually appreciate this this opportunity that you know fell upon me here to do this episode so i I I have a deep personal appreciation for victor your time thank you so much for taking the time to have you with us um chris and frank thank you for joining and sharing perspectives um um yeah I, i i i'm i'm very in my own head right now so forgive me as i close this out lot to think about. And I really just really, um, I think I hope this was as kind of helpful and impactful for others as well. Um, with that being said, I'd like to close the show out and uh, let, you, let everybody know that we are releasing episodes every Tuesday of Love as a Business Strategy. And if you enjoyed this or you have any comments, suggestions, uh, things to add, please let us know at softway.com slash labs, L-A-A-B-S. And we appreciate any reviews and subscriptions you have and tell your friends because we are really enjoying the content we're starting to put out here and, and people like Victor that we get to meet and uh, we'd love to know what you guys like to see. So share the love as a business strategy podcast. And with that, Victor, once again, thank you very much. And thank you. See you next week. Bye.